So single-cell genomics has completely revolutionized our understanding of the type and nature of cells that exist in the human body, many cells which have been discovered that we didn't even know existed. So in the context of immunology, in fact, in one one-day experiment, we can recreate the entire catalogue of cell types that took us probably 80 years to figure out. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello, and thanks for joining me for episode 45 of the Genomics Podcast. Cells are the building blocks of human life. They're really the core elements that make up all of our different tissues and organs. So understanding cells is really key to understanding human biology as well as human disease. Traditional techniques like microscopy or flow cytometry or any number of functional or phenotypic assays have all helped us to understand different cell types and what they do. Now, while these technologies have been extraordinarily helpful in understanding cell biology, these approaches have typically analyzed cells in bulk. And this bulk analysis has limited our resolution of cellular diversity and complexity. More recently, scientists have developed next-generation sequencing, or NGS techniques, to characterize the genetic material from thousands or even millions of individual cells isolated from bulk tissues. These so-called single-cell genomics techniques have revolutionized our understanding of the type and nature of cells that exist in our bodies. Today, we're going to talk about how single-cell genomics has improved our understanding of the immune system how it develops, and how it functions to keep us healthy. I'm joined in this discussion by Dr. Shalin Naik. Shalin is laboratory head in the Division of Immunology at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. He's an expert in single-cell genomics, and he uses this technology to better understand how cells of the immune system are formed from blood stem cells. Shalin Naik, welcome to the Genomics Podcast. So today we're going to talk about applying genomics analysis to better understand how the immune system develops and functions. And I know that you're a big fan of using single-cell genomics and RNA sequencing in particular. But before we get into a discussion on the genomics, could we just have a quick discussion of the immune system? Because that's a topic I think that, at least for me, it kind of throws me off. When I read a paper about the immune system, you know, there are tons of different proteins, tons of different immune cells different activation states of those cells, and so I get confused very fast. So can we just have a quick introduction, a basic introduction to the immune system? What is it, and uh, what kinds of cells are involved in immunity? I was someone who was also very confused by the immune system. In fact, all through undergrad, I was planning for that to be the subject I failed. (laughs) You would set yourself up for that. That's it. But then three days before the exam, I read Janeway and Travers' Immunobiology, which is the Bible. And I read that cover to cover and suddenly a light went off in my head and it it all made sense. And briefly speaking, the immune system can be explained by any other kind of analogy of warfare where you have um, certain players who are investigating what's going on. Then there's a certain headquarters where the investigators are educating the soldiers. 
and then the soldiers go out and get rid of the invader. And briefly speaking, that's all there is. And as we learn more and more about immunology, that basic premise gets refined. And so we have the cells we all know and love, dendritic cells, B cells, T cells. And without going into depth of all of them, it's essentially trying to say, well, how do we get rid of pathogens that are extracellular, those that are intracellular, and separate them from those that are commensals, because some bacteria we really need. Right, that's right. And some bacteria and viruses and pathogens we don't need. So the cells are the centuries for taking up little bits of pathogen, educating the, the soldiers in the immune system. When your lymph nodes go up under your armpit or in your neck, that's when those cells are talking to each other and expanding in number and going out and killing those cells or producing antibodies to get rid of it. You and your team are specifically interested in understanding how those kinds of cells that you just talked about, how they develop, starting from hematopoietic stem cells. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Yeah. And these are simply blood stem cells. So can you spend a minute or so describing a bit more about that process for the immune system? Well, hematopoietic stem cells in some way were one of the first descriptions of a stem cell. And that was with the work of Tillon McCulloch and others many years ago. And through transplantation assays, they found that a certain proportion of cells, which they took from the spleen and from the bone marrow of mice, were able to reconstitute a full immune system in the donor mouse. And through that and many, many decades of work since then, what we know is that in the adult, hematopoietic stem cells reside mostly in the bone marrow. The current dogma is that those stem cells then give rise to intermediate stem cells, and then those stem cells divide and divide and differentiate and gradually give rise to all of the different not only white blood cell types, such as the immune cells we just talked about, but also red blood cells and the megakaryocytes that produce platelets. So that whole span of blood lineage is produced by the hematopoietic stem cell. However, despite decades of research, we still don't actually know what they do in a native environment. A lot of our assays rely on ripping the cells out of their niche, putting them back in, or having a reporter that might report on one gene. But we don't know cell by cell what each stem cell does, when it does something, what the genes that regulate it are, because ideally what you want to do is get... Uh, what was that movie where Martin Short was in the little machine and went inside the body? <laughs> I think there are a lot of movies like <laughs> yeah. that, actually. Anyway, that one. What you need is one of those to go into the body and then just peer at a stem cell doing its job real time. And some people have done that, but we're still not there yet. We still don't get how one cell or a collection of single cells can give rise to this huge compartment of diversity. One of the technologies that you're applying to address this question is single cell RNA sequencing or RNA-seq. And for those listeners who don't know, it's a high-tech genomics approach where you're isolating lots of different individual cells. In your case, it would be stem cells or immune cells. And you're doing RNA sequencing on these individual cells on a large scale. Why is the single cell approach so important for biology? So if I hand you a fruit smoothie, you know it's delicious, but you don't know what fruits went into that if you weren't in the kitchen while I prepared that. And in fact, maybe I put a fruit in there that you didn't even know existed, right? So if we deconstruct that smoothie now, we've got strawberries and peaches, and maybe now there's a few blueberries in there. Now, if you didn't know the blueberries even existed and I put them in there, it would just be part of the soup of 
the smoothie. And in fact, that's what genomics to date has been, is bulk tissue, a bit of cancer or a certain immune cell. But in essence, it's a mishmash of things and you can never pinpoint what's going on. So single cell genomics has completely revolutionized our understanding of the type and nature of cells that exist in the human body. Many cells which have been discovered that we didn't even know existed. So what this allows us to do is take a very unbiased approach and discover what sort of players there are, not only in a healthy individual or between healthy individuals, for example, you and I, but also then in disease states, whether it's a genetic disease, infectious disease. So in the context of immunology, in fact, in one one-day experiment, we can recreate the entire catalogue of cell types that took us probably 80 years to figure out. Their existence, not their function. Right. Right. And I think this is where it's worth pausing for a second and say, this is a great way to catalogue things. Yeah. But it's, it's not telling you what those cells do. It's not telling you how they work, how they interact. Although we're getting there now with, uh, with many kind of interactome-style experiments. Essentially, it's a cataloging exercise. And in, in the same way, the Human Genome Project catalogued the DNA that constitutes the human genome. And, then, and we're still figuring out how it all interacts. You know, there's no, there's no end in sight. In that same way, we're rediscovering the cell types we already knew existed, discovering new ones. But the critical thing would be is that what does each cell type do? Now, there are two kinds of single-cell biologists out there, broadly speaking. <laughs> I wasn't aware there were two types, but this there's, is interesting. There's two types. There's the single-cell biologists who've come from the biology field, and they've been studying single cells under the microscope sure. or using flow cytometry right. or all sorts of other means. And there's the other side of people who've come from the genomics field, so they understand genomics intimately. And here we have one of these rare times in scientific history where the flow cytometrists and the genomicists are finally talking to each other in a way they never really have before because they just spoke a language that didn't make sense to each other. But now we're studying the same thing, which is single cells. And we've solved a lot of the issues of cellular diversity and cellular function through years of flow cytometry. But the genomicists have come in and said, guys, <laughs> <laughs> you have much to learn. <laughs> you, you have much to learn. And, and so I think we're at this unique situation where there's a bit of kind of a learning curve for both sides, but we're getting to that point now where the lessons learned from decades, 100 years of biology and the decades of genomics research are finally meeting to uncover biology in a really unprecedented way. What kind of drove those two groups of people together? What, was it the technology development or, or what was it? Immunologists through multicolor flow cytometry have been studying cellular diversity since the invention of the fax machine in, in the 70s. First, it was one color, then it was two, and now we're up to I think 50 40, or so. right? Yeah. Or something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And now with the Cytoff, theoretically, it can go up to 100 or so parameters. But now, you know, the genomics people have come along and said, screw your fluorochromes <laughs> and your heavy metals. We've got the best barcode. It's a DNA barcode, theoretically limitless number of parameters you can study. And so approaches like SightSeek Sight -seek, yeah. allow us to interrogate cellular heterogeneity in a way that was unimaginable right, right. 10 years ago. And so often biologists are coming at it with the knowledge that it's the proteins that are doing the final bit of the job. Obviously, the cells are doing the job, the organism's doing the job, but the cells are interacting. And, and the thing about proteins versus RNA is protein's relatively stable. Right? So you, let's take one extreme example, a CDA T cell. All CD8 T cells express very high levels of CD8 protein on the surface. 
It's clear. Clear as day. You look at the single cell mRNA expression of CD8, different picture. Really? Very different picture. Because CD8 in a naive T cell is transcriptionally very quiet. And so when you look at the cell, it doesn't exist that much oh, that's in many cells. So you can go down the garden path with either one approach. If you look at protein alone, you see the absence of a protein, you say, ah, no big deal. But if you looked at the RNA, maybe the cell's poised, ready to go to make protein, and it's got bucket loads of RNA for that particular protein. And in the converse, you might have a very long-term produced protein that's highly stable, that's not turning over, and therefore there's no need for transcriptional activity. So to my mind, the only way we're going to get the full gamut of possibilities that single-cell profiling can give you is by studying all of the omics in unison in every cell. And then you're going to get a real appreciation of the dynamics of the biology, the finesse of the biology. One of the publications that I was reading that you published uses an NGS method that you called SysSeq. And in this, this method, you're combining conventional single-cell RNA-seq approaches with a kind of a phenotypic approach where you can track cell fate, which is really important, right? Because when you normally do single-cell RNA-seq, any single-cell seq, you destroy that cell, so your ability to track the phenotype, it goes away. So talk a little bit about this approach where you can actually combine the genomics information with the phenotype or the cell fate decision that these cells take. So as you mentioned, single-cell RNA-seq destroys the cell. A single-cell fate assay doesn't destroy it, but that cell divides and differentiates and does whatever it's supposed to. So if one stem cell made cell type A, all of its daughters made cell type A, you would want to go back in time and analyze that cell by single-cell RNA-seq. Right. But you can't without a time machine. So we came up with SysSeq, which we call the molecular time machine. And our basic premise was, and this was through studying, staring down the microscope and looking at fat plots of individual clones of stem cells over many years of my research, that the cell types that a given stem or progenocell makes is often locked into that mother cell. Really? Yeah. Already at that early stage. Already at that early stage. And I think it's a highly underappreciated aspect of biology is that the lineage imprinting is there. And it's only now that we have the technologies to look for it. Are we seeing that that is the case? So the dogma was the stem cell is undifferentiated. There's no programs to divert it one way or the other. And it's only when it gets really downstream in its development that it starts making those decisions to go one way or the other. So what we said was, well, Let's drop a single cell in, let it divide a couple of times, and now we have daughters as the surrogates of the mother. So if we've got eight daughters now, well, we can do eight different assays on that same clone. And we made sure that we first tested that if you separated, let's say, those eight cells in four in one well and four in another well, those four cells still did the same thing. So if a system could generate three different cell types, for example, then the daughters of that original clone in separate worlds still made cell type A only, or a different clone made cell type B only, or another clone made A and B, but not C. Mm -hmm. So we first did all those very careful principle experiments, and then we said, right, well, now let's split it not in two, let's split it in three. Some for RNA-seq, and some for technical replicates for fate assays. And only when the fate was mirrored between the two wells would we then go back to the RNA-seq data we captured you know, a week and a bit earlier, and said, well, what genes correlated with the fate of that clone? Right. So if that clone's biased to A, then there must be genes that correlate with fate A there, mm -hmm. right, by necessity. 
And obviously you can't do that with one clone, but if you get up to 100 clones, now you start to see patterns. And those genes we found, we would not have found if we just did shotgun RNA-seq. Really? We would not have found it through public databases of hematopoietic stem and progenocell heterogeneity. We just would not have seen them. Why? Because, as I said earlier about the CD8 T-cells, gene expression level does not indicate importance. Right? Because we, we don't know what the protein's doing. And so what we found were very subtle biases in only a handful of clones out of the 100 clones that expressed, you know, gene X. And when we knock that out with CRISPR, that's the one that's very important for cell type A. How interesting. Right? But you wouldn't have discovered it if you just took shotgun approaches. So again, this is where we feel aspects of the field should be moving towards is, well, let's figure out how we connect functional heterogeneity with phenotypic heterogeneity. And that phenotypic could be protein level or it could be genomic level. One of the things I think has been really interesting about single cell genomics is it's taught us a lot of different things about the heterogeneity of different tissues. And one of those tissues is the tumor in cancer. So we've learned that tumor is composed of multiple different clones of cells. Some of those clones may be responsive to a particular treatment, while some of them might not. And the complexity goes even beyond that because those tumors are infiltrated by an individual's own immune cells. Does the work that you're doing on understanding how these cell fate decisions are made in the immune system, does that inform at all our understanding of how the immune system is interacting with the tumor microenvironment? Yes, absolutely. So as a kind of prelude to that, for those who haven't really caught wind of the immunotherapy revolution, right. um, you know, immunotherapy or cancer immunology was a dirty word amongst a lot of immunologists, uh, especially when I was training. But now through the work of many people, but in particular the development of the checkpoint inhibitors, right. we right. know that the tumour microenvironment has evolved ways to shut down mechanisms that the immune system normally has in place to try and kill the tumour. Because the immune system is pretty good at finding altered self. So the natural killer cells, the adaptive immune system, but also the innate immune system can sense this, have ways to deal with it, and can kill or suppress tumor growth. So clearly the immune system plays a really important role. What role does it play? We're still figuring it out. It's clear that T cells definitely play a role. But one of the cells close to my heart is the dendritic cell. I call dendritic cells the James Bond of the immune system. <laughs> so they're not really getting their hands dirty with warfare, but they take a little snapshot of the pathogen. They go back to headquarters and they teach the soldier cells about the, the nature of that invading pathogen. Dendritic cells are critical in this response as well. So I think as we understand immune heterogeneity and tumor heterogeneity, we'll be able to understand what mechanisms the tumor is using to suppress the immune system from killing it. What do I mean by tumor heterogeneity? Well, it can be many things. It can be the factors that certain tumor cells are producing. It could be the way the tumor functions to create a 3D environment to exclude immune cells from its environment or to affect the stromal cells that are natural to the body to then produce factors that suppress the immune cells and so on and so forth. So understanding spatial heterogeneity, tumor heterogeneity, immune cell heterogeneity, and most importantly, how all of those factors into right. play, I think we're going to see a real change. And we're already seeing a change. It's only going to get better in terms of how we harness the power of the immune system to get rid of cancer. 
I just want to talk about this briefly because I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. So here in Australia, I joked with you a little bit about it, but you are the co-host of a health and medical science educational show. Actually, two, right? Yes. And yeah. you said that this is available on Netflix, which I'm super excited about, and I'm going to go and watch some of these. Can you talk just briefly about that show? What is it about? What's your role in that show? And, you know, I have my own opinions, but why do you think it's important to engage with the general public to discuss issues about science? So in, in my particular case, it was a bit of an accident. I've been interested in science communication since high school. So that's intrinsic in me. But I, I was given this opportunity to be the scientist amongst three co-hosts of this TV show called Ask the Doctor. The other two are medical doctors and I'm the scientist. Okay. And the remit of the show was, let's bring health and medical science to a wide general public, not just the kind of documentary watchers who are, you know, burrowed away in their, you know, in their laptop or in their lounge. I'm one of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so in some way, we'd be preaching to the converted. Yeah, there, that's because, right. You know, they understand and respect science and they want to imbibe more of it. But how do we get person off the street to get interested in it? So Ask the Doctor is that show. It's very easy to digest. It's very light. And we cover health topics for which are very relevant to almost everyone. Sleep, diet, exercise, all of those things. But then we also try and get in, into you know, some of the more difficult territory like antibiotic resistance, genome sequencing, things like that. So in that show, I'm sort of the guinea pig. So if we're studying the microbiome, for example, they got me on a junk food diet for two weeks, measured the bacteria composition of my poo. <laughs> and then I switched to a high-resistant starch diet, which encourages the microbiome, and did that for two weeks, and then gave another sample. Mm. And, and I had my baseline before the whole experiment. And then we could compare the changes. And we saw, real-time, in effect, how the diet that I was having affected my microbiome, and we saw which strains of bacteria were going up and down, and we know from prior research which one of these are correlated with cardiovascular disease and gut cancer and things like that. And you could see it change. So I think having a scenario where I'm put under the microscope, so to speak, and see real results and then try and inject a little bit of science here along the way, that's the strategy of this particular show to try and say, well, you know, all of the advice that your doctor's giving you isn't just because they're trying to preach to you. It's, it's based on evidence that, yeah, that's come along the way. Yeah, there's something behind that. That's right. I think that's really super important, and I'll tell you why, because, you know, some of the challenges that I think society is going to face, whether it's, you know, global warming or antibiotic resistance or not a problem, but the rise of gene editing is a technology that people are going to have to confront and deal with, and not just scientists, but, you know, average, regular people, general public. I think if scientists don't take the responsibility of leading that discussion and explaining what's going on, I think other people will do that for us, and I think that will be a big problem. So I think we should control that discussion and begin it and try to do our best to communicate the truth from what's not actually true. So kudos to doing that. Yeah, I completely agree. And in fact, a one episode that called Genes in season one, it's available on Netflix, we do exactly that. So I go and get my genome sequenced. You do? Yeah. So I do whole genome sequencing, and then I get a report. So we made a decision, well, the, the organization made a decision that would only disclose the genes which are actionable. That is only those genes for which I could do something about to alter the trajectory of my life. Not genes that are like, sorry, you, <laughs> you got this one. That's some bad news Tough for you, bitties. Charlotte. But, you know, it was weird because suddenly I'm not reading about it. I'm experiencing it. Yeah. 
so I, I talk to my wife, I talk to my parents, I talk to an ethicist about what the consequences might be. And surprisingly, the biggest one was, what if I get tested, I find a gene that can affect my child's health, I don't do anything about it, I have that child, that child now has that gene, right. and they grow up and they're like, dad, what the hell? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, why didn't you do anything about it? And yeah. and actually, that's an ethical quandary I had to really grapple with before I... Well, you'll have to watch the episode to see what happens oh, next. that's awesome. No, I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to do it. I yeah. can't wait to see that. What excites you about the future of single-cell genomics in the study of the immune system? You know, are there particular technological or scientific advancements that you think we'll see in the next five to ten years? You know, what does the future of single-cell omics look like? Yeah. My personal favorite is cell history. And what do I mean by cell history? Well, you know, there's a few people who've, who've done some really great work in this space, and that is recording a cell's history. So a cell is, you know, when you do single-cell RNA-seq on a cell, you get the gene expression profile. But what made it so? What was the experience of its ancestors that led it to be that kind of cell? So let's say it's a type of T-cell that is an autoimmune T-cell. It kills your own tissue. Well, what about its experience led to that problem? So imagine if you could record in the DNA or other means, but I think the DNA is probably the easiest way, not all of the things, but some of the things that happened to that cell along the way that might inform how it got there. So we're thinking about, and lots of other people are thinking about, well, how do we start recording little bits of information of its experience, not just in terms of lineage history, like what cells it's related to, like its cellular barcoding, but did it experience a certain cytokine one month ago and then a different cytokine two weeks ago? And then did it get co-stimulation from this other cell yesterday? Could we record that in a cell and then play back that history? Oh, that'd be super cool. <laughs> so we're thinking about that and other people think about that. I think that's where we're going to get some next level of profound insight is cell history recording and playing back that tape. That's awesome. Shailen, I want to thank you for spending the time to talk with us about your work, about scientific communication. It's really a fascinating story. Thanks for sharing it with us, and thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you. So the combination of cell biology and genomics has allowed scientists an unprecedented level of understanding of the cell types that underlie human biology and human diseases. Integrating studies of genetic material with protein and phenotypic data, all at the single cell level, will drive new discoveries in the future. Hey, you can see Shalian in Ask the Doctor, a light but engaging documentary series about science and medicine. It's available on Netflix, and it's a lot of fun, so check it out. If you liked our show today, why not subscribe to the Genomics Podcast? You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also hear our show by asking Siri, Alexa, or your Google Assistant. Just say, play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when we'll continue our discussion of the immune system with Professor Carola Vinueza, co-director of the Center for Personalized Immunology at the Australian National University. We'll be discussing genomics and autoimmune diseases right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>